Got it. You'd think this was my first Zoom meeting. I'm so excited. I could hardly find the mute. I'm so happy to be with you. I'm so glad to see Barbara, especially. I'm glad to see you all, but I'm really glad to see Barbara. We are, we're my best COVID story. <laughs> my very best. And there have, been some, there have been some wonderful ones. I'm trying to find a timer because if you know anything about me, you know I don't know any short stories. And I keep promising myself I'm going to get a real live clock to sit here in front of me hasn't happened. So um, if I get like 10 minutes from the end, will you wave at me or something? And thank you. I appreciate that. What a lovely thing to see you girls and boys this afternoon. My name is Ellen Cassidy and I'm an enthusiastic, boundlessly grateful Alan. I am so grateful uh, to have a place to go with people. I, I only know, I know, I know Barbara. And I'm sure I know other people in this meeting, but it is amazing to me in this time of COVID what has happened to the Al-Anon program. Um, we have people from two or three countries in our meetings, and, and now we're in the, probably what you're in, which is how are we going to handle the move back? And then what do we do? And the people back, la, 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 la. we're in the middle of all of that right now. Thank God for concepts um, to help us guide our way through this, this new world. We can't go back to where we were, so we got to find where the new world is. Um, I introduced myself as an Al-Anon. I always want to explain that. I always like to explain that as the truth, which um, is uh, it's not a good sign because explaining things is one of my symptoms. <laughs> That's how I got to Al-Anon. I always thought if I could get you to listen long enough, you'd see the light, which is my way, and then we'd all be happy. And uh, if you are an explainer like me, you know that that is rarely the way it works rarely the way it works. But I have, uh, God sent me out on a mission. I'm sure that's what it is that, uh, and he said, you, there's a little nest of people around that I, I want you to go and explain this to him. I'm sure that's what he said. So I'm going to explain to you about, about me being an, an Al-Anon. One of the words I hear, uh, often these days in meetings is this word qualifier. Uh, I am here to tell you that I, I have my own qualifier. Nobody, it, I'm not here because of somebody else. I walked through the door for some, because of somebody else. It's not the reason I stayed. I've stayed here because of me. I've stayed here because uh, there, there was a time when all the alcoholics left me. Yeah, every one of them. I didn't leave them. They left me. And I was crazier when they left than I was when they were there. Uh, it's my head that gets me into trouble. It's not their behavior. It's my head that gets me into trouble. I am my own qualifier. I'm not in Al-Anon because of other people. I'm in Al-Anon <clears throat> because I, I have a recovery program that I practice like, a, uh, uh, like my life depends on it. I'm convinced today of the fatal nature of my disease. Um, I used to call it just a 12-step program, but that's so limiting. It's a 12-step, 12-tradition, 12 12-concept 12 program. And that's another one of the gifts of COVID. I had a lot of time last year. So got involved with a group that studied the concepts. So I won't tell you that I'm, I'm facile with it, but I sure know a lot about it than I used to. And I'm amazed. I'm amazed at us. Um, I'm an Al-Anon because I have a committed meeting that I go to every week, like a doctor's appointment. If you want to find me, you come Monday night at 6.15 to the Addison Al-Anon family group meeting. And that's where I'll be. Even on Zoom, that's where I'll be. And when I get to that meeting, even on Zoom, there's inevitably somebody there that goes, oh, hi, Ellen, hi, Ellen, hi, Ellen. 
and I, I get to go around to all the little squares. And I feel like the lady on Romper Room. Do you remember her, Miss Barbara or whatever her name was? And she would speak to all the little children. Oh, I see Phyllis and I see Jan and I see, hi, Rosalie. That's what I feel like. <laughs> but it's okay. It's perfectly all right. Takes me back to a simpler time. Um, it's a place where I feel welcomed. It's a place where I feel wanted. It's a place where I feel useful. Now, I was, I'm an Al-Anon because I have a sponsor who knows everything there is to know about me, everything that I know about me that may not be all there is to know, but it's all I know. And um, I've never told her anything that shocked her. I've told her a few things that made her roll her eyes, but um, I don't think she was shocked. Um, she always seems like she loves me more when we finish talking than she did when she started. Uh, I'm an Al-Anon and I'm so grateful. So grateful there's such a thing as Al-Anon to be. I was 17 when mama diagnosed me. She, um, she diagnosed me as boy crazy and she sent me to Lubbock to be safe. Now in 1963, as far as being safe from boys, Lubbock, Texas was seven to one boys to girls at that point. It was the briar patch. She threw me in the briar patch. Um, she sent me for an education. I went looking for him because I was always looking for him. I always had a him because you couldn't be himless. <laughs> I mean, really. But how good could he be? He's with me. Come on. So um, I went looking for him. It took me uh, six months to find him, but I found him. I found him. He was married to somebody else and had two kids and was 60 pounds overweight, but none of that seemed insurmountable to me. I really have never liked the easy ones, you know, the ones who, the ones who'd say, oh, you're so cute. Could I have a, no, get away from me. I want the ones I have to fight for, the ones I have to earn, the ones I have to make love me. Whew. I was pretty good at it too. I get a rush still talking about that. I don't know what in the world I would do if I caught one these days, but <clears throat> actually I'm not trying, but, uh, and I had my prize six months later after I met him, we, uh, we, uh, we shed the wife, the two kids and the 60 pounds because I'm a total redoer when I get those little fixer uppers. And uh, I had my prize. I just, I had to, had to telegraph my dad that I had gotten married because I was too embarrassed to tell him. My mother had already said that if I wanted to marry that guy, she was not going to have any part of the wedding or any part of that. She was not going to have any part of it. There I go. I mean, that was the way I was growing up. There I go. Just dare me. Just dare me. Um, six months later, he hit me for the first time. He was drunk when he hit me. He was drunk every time he hit me. I didn't grow up in a family where adults hit each other. So my reaction to it wasn't anything anybody taught me. I thought it up all by myself in this fabulous little solution center right between my ears here. Um, and the very best thing I could think to do, I remember it like it was yesterday. The very best thing I could think to do was double dog dare him to do it again. I thought it was a power move. Turns out, nope, just more insanity. That's all it was, just more insanity. And it didn't take any more insanity on his part to hit me the second time than it did the first time. Now, I grew up in a family of heavy drinkers. I grew up in a family, an entire family, that acted as if there was something the matter with people who didn't drink. You should, you know, you should not hang around with those people. Ellen. Those are fanatics, you know. They may even be Baptists. I'm pretty sure they never said that. But that was one of the things I thought I heard, you know. Um, so that's the way we lived because uh, one of my other uh, defects of character or um, my uh, defaults or my um, 
costumes that I've worn in my years is a sticker. I make my bed and I'll stick in it. I don't want to look like I made a mistake. God knows I don't want to look like I made a mistake. I look like I planned it. So I stuck. And uh, we stayed married nine and a half years and uh, brought two children into that. Um, and then I left him. Gosh, it sounds like I must have grown some sense, but that, that's not what happened. <laughs> that's not what happened at all. Um, another guy came along who said, you don't have to live like that. And I love you. And we'd had one more, the, the physicalness, the physical abuse happened more and more and more often. And we'd gotten to a, a place where he, he had never, he never hit our children, but he was walking, our three-year-old was walking through the living room and he walked past him and my child shrugged, ducked away from him. And I, there was a thing in me that said, I'm not living, I'm not going to put that boy through that. I'm not doing it. And then the magic captain, this guy came along. Um, I can't tell you exactly when all this passed and I don't, it's just part of the, part of my path, but what I know as a result of doing a number of inventories and, um, talking a lot because Al-Anon allowed me to talk about it. Um, Al-Anon was the first place I did talk about it. My sponsor was the first person I told back in that day. And my first meeting, by the way, was November 3rd of 1981. That doesn't take much math to know that next week I'll have 40 years, 40 years. <laughs> I hate telling, I really am not happy that I tell people that because I don't want you to think after 40 years, this is what we got. <laughs> you should have seen me before. Oh, the mess. Um, uh, but, um, when I came into the, my first fifth step, I told her what happened when he did what I called hitting me. Although the last thing that happened was he held me repeatedly under a cabin cruiser in 20 feet of water, which isn't hitting. That's attempted murder, she said. But I have a disease called it's not that bad. That's what I say. It's not that bad. That's the death knell. The minute I say it's not that bad. I can put up with this. I can stay in this one more day. Um, what I know now is that every time he hit me, I believed what he said, which was if I hadn't done what I did, he wouldn't have to do what he did. Every time he hit me and I believed what he said, which was I deserved that. Every time he hit me and I got up the next morning and I looked at a black eye or a split lip or a bloody nose. And I said to myself, it's not that bad. I can stay in the house another day, another day, another day. I heard a speaker now and i say one time, she, uh, she washed her face off a day at a time in the disease of alcoholism. And I think that's what I did too. Every time I did that, a piece of me left and another piece and another piece until nine years later, there was nobody left who could stand up and say, you can't treat me like that. There was nobody here. The lights were, were off. The windows were open, but the lights were off. And so here came number two. Now I knew what I'd done wrong with number one. I thought my mama might've had a point after all about that guy. And, uh, I had a checklist in my head of what number two ought to be like. I was always, for years, I'd, I'd been hoping there would be a number two. And this guy was perfect. Number two was perfect. He was the right age, right coloring, right job. Well, as long as I worked full time, it was the right job. Um, he had a lovely family and they didn't live too close to which, too close to us, which I thought I could make that work. And, um, and uh, I, he was just darn near perfect. I thought this, I, I got it now. I got it now. I got it. Um, he did turn out to have one tiny little flaw. And that was that he didn't come home nights. 
but I'm thinking a couple of home cooked meals and a little, you know, and I got him because that was the way I marked my territory back in the day. And uh, so for some length of time that in my head, it says six months. I have no idea if it was six months or not. I don't, who knows what goes on in my head? Not me. Um, he came home every evening. So I assumed I was doing it right because it is all about me. I have the power. I have the power to make him come home. I have the power to make him not come home. And then the night came that he didn't come. Well, I was dealing with a subset of alcoholic I'd never even met before that I knew of, which was a subset of alcohol of alcoholics, the bar drinking variety, who is, a, is addicted to the place and the people in it as they are to the substance alcohol. By the way, I want to thank those of you who are able to keep your screens on because it makes it, I, I love looking at your faces and feel like I'm not alone in the room with dots. Hi, Cindy, with dots and <laughs> hi, hi, Azelle. Ooh, what a lovely name, Sally. What a lovely name. And I'm not alone in here with the dots. So I, I, and I know that's not possible. And I, I appreciate that the being able to be off screen may make you feel safer. It also may make it possible for us to not have to watch you eat, which I appreciate that too, because I can get real distracted with that kind of thing. Um, anyway, I lay on the floor of the bathroom and I cried because I was pretty sure he'd seen the two pounds I gained and that's why I didn't love me anymore. And that's why I wouldn't come home. And then I decided I was really stupid that morning because he had said what's for dinner. And I told him the truth. I said, we're having roast beef. Everybody knows pork chops are his best his favorite thing. So I decided from then on that whenever he asked what was for supper, I was always going to say pork chops. And then I could get him home. And once he was home and I locked the door, I could tell him the truth about what we were having for dinner. And then I decided what I really needed to do was go sit and wait. And if you're in training for Al-Anon, you must pass waiting 101. And you know you're in waiting 101 if when you are waiting, you can do nothing else. You can't talk on the phone. You can't read a book. Can't talk to the kids. The kids would come up and they'd go, huh? And I'd go, shh. I'm waiting. <laughs> and that's because when I'm in that strain of waiting, I'm listening. And I'm listening for the sound of those tires. I have the same reaction to the sound of those tires as I've heard an alcoholic say a drink did for them. I would hear those tires and I'd go, ah, it's all going to be okay because he's home now. It's all going to be okay. <laughs> My next thought may be, but I'm killing him when he walks in the door. But that was rare. I, I really was not very... Um, I, I wasn't, I wasn't very physical. I learned my lesson there. Um, and, and so I'm going to, I'm going to tell you this little part and I'm going to do this as quickly as I can. I'm going to do it all as quickly as I can. Um, I suspect that we are a lot more alike than some people realize, because I suspect that you have the same gift, gift I have, which is that your head makes up stories, right? Your head makes up stories. They're not happy stories, are they? No, uh -uh. there's always a lot of pain and suffering, and I'm the one in the pain and suffering. That's what's happening in my story. Just this year, I learned about uh, this part of our little lizard brain, our reptilian brain that was part of our evolution, that uh, still has this sense that the saber-toothed tiger is coming. If I feel threatened, it goes right in a nanosecond to saber-tooth. You know, it never starts with also, it's a light breeze, you know. No, it goes right to saber tooth tiger. And there's a thing in my head that says, you have got to, your life depends on figuring out how you're going to keep safe. So you need to figure this out. So my, the story starts 
And the story starts one dig it, get it, get it, get it, get it, get it, get it, and then I make up an ending. I make something of the up that either it's their fault, it's my fault. I can do this. I can move the TV two inches this way. I can get the kids quieter. I can, you know, serve different things for dinner. Um, and then he will come home. And then when I figure out the answer, I get a little shot of uh, uh, oh serotonin. I get a little shot of serotonin in my brain. It rewards me for coming up with the right with an answer, with an answer. And uh, the problem there is I now believe this, uh, this must be the right answer because it feels like the right answer. And I will stand by that. I will argue it. It turns out there's a, 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 a scientifically proved fact about a, 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 a thing we do called confabulating. Confabulating. That's called confabulating. And what it is, the definition is honestly lying. I believe what I'm saying is the truth, but it isn't the truth. It's just a story I made up. And I will argue you to the death to get you to see it my way, to know that my truth is the right thing. Um, so I, uh, it, isn't the, it isn't the veracity of what we say, it's the certitude with, with, which, with which we believe it. So you know that's what I did. I believed with all my heart and soul, the story started in my head. I know what's happened to him. His car was out in the country. I don't know why we don't live in the country, but his car was out in the country, blew up, very bad wreck. One car accident, I don't know how it happened, but it's very bad. And it's blown his body into a ditch by the side of the road. Nobody can see him because he's down in the ditch by the side of the road. Coast cars are going past, but nobody can see him and he's dying and he's not quite dead. And it's horrible. It's really sad. And he's calling me, Ellen, I love you. And now, you know, wild animals are coming and tearing off body parts and storing them in the forest. And it'll be seven years before we can identify the body. You know, when I came to Al-Anon, I told him that story. After a while, I didn't tell him that in the beginning. But I, it might have been actually at a women's conference away for the weekend where they wear you down, you know, when you say things that you never would have said otherwise. But I told him that story. And I said, that's how much I love people. They said, that isn't love. That's obsession. Obsession is when you think it all the way to the place where somebody dies. That's obsession. And obsession is all out warfare on powerlessness. The more powerless I feel, the more apt I am to be obsessed. I might be powerless about the thing I know I'm, um, I might be obsessed about the thing I know I'm powerless over, or I might pick out something else altogether. I might not have gotten the sense. I already have a, this unrest in my body that's telling me something is not right, but it hadn't defined itself in my head yet. So I'll find something else to get obsessed about my weight or your weight or your kids, my kids or the or politics, or whatever, you know, uh, something else to get obsessed about. Obsession is all-out warfare on powerlessness. And uh, the, the fabulous thing is that the way out of that kind of think, thinking is numbered. I'm so happy I can talk about the big book here without having to make major apolo apologies. I, too, um, I don't mean to be disrespectful, and we have wonderful, wonderful um, uh, books and workbooks in Al-Anon. Um, but uh, my first sponsor of 15 years was Marcy White, who um, came into program in 1954 in Midland when there was no Al-Anon to come into. She walked into open AA meetings with her husband, Bob, who was getting sober. She loved how it felt in the room. Um, and she wanted what they had in the fabulous alcoholic women in that group said, if you want to go through the steps, we'll take you. Who knew she might have been a closet alcoholic? You don't know. 
No, she was not. But steps didn't care. Steps worked for it just the same. The only thing they could use to, the only thing they had to go by was the big book. So that's what they did with it. And that's what she did for us. Um, there's a line, it's in the first 25 pages, maybe 24, 25, that says you can, it describes the way I live my life up until I got to step one. And I call it step zero. You could go to the bitter end, blotting out the consequences of your intolerable situation, or you could accept spiritual help. I love it that it doesn't say ask for. It says accept. You know, that's the part I have trouble with. I ask for help, but if I don't like the way it looks sometimes, I'm thinking I'm just going to wait to see what's behind curtain number two, you know, because I don't, this can't be the answer here. Um, it says accept the help when it comes. And once I can, you know, today, most of the time, there are still some times when step one feels like a knife to my heart. <laughs> but most of the time, when after, if I get to step zero and I realize that's what I'm doing and I, I get to step one, it's like an, oh, thank God, I got the way out of that. The squirrel cage thinking doesn't have to go on and on and on and on. I can start at step one and I can work um, my way through the rest of that. Um, but that's the story I had. And of course, you know, one of the other, other ways I've been introduced to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was um, the group I landed in in 1981 when it came to Al-Anon. They had a daily, I mean, they had a weekly program that they did, which was you went to a, um, at least two Al-Anon meetings and one open AA meeting a week. Now, I was the only one, as I remember it, in the room of, of that Al-Anon group when I came in who did not have somebody recovering in the AA side. Very strong family recovery, very different from the way it is today. Um, so that was their date night. You know, they'd go with their, their spouses to the AA meeting. And I'm so lucky that they're, I feel so blessed that there's such a thing as open AA meetings, you know, where it's not an alcoholic that I'm involved with yet speaking, it doesn't take me long. I can fall in love in about you know 30 seconds. Um, and when I could hear those people talking, I started to tell the difference between the man and the disease. I started to be able to tell the difference between can't and won't. And I started to understand the family disease even better. And one of the things I heard repeatedly in those stories was 99 times out of 100, they came home might be that day or the next week or three years later, but they always, for the most part, went home. So, you know, he came home. He came home that night. He was three hours late and drunk. And I met him at the door, you know, cry, like a, like a three-year-old who's been crying all afternoon. I know you remember those days with the swollen eyes and the snot everywhere. Oh, so attractive. No wonder they drink. And uh, ask him the second stupidest question we can ask. The stupidest, of course, is had he been drinking. Second stupidest is where have you been? Because there was only one place that would work. Because my brain had already made up the ending. He had to be in a ditch bleeding. Everything else was going to hurt my feelings. Everything else. And he said, you knew where I was. Well, the truth of the matter is I knew where he was if I thought about it. Um, he only went three places. He was at home, at work, or in the trap room drinking. But I have the ability to hold opposing thoughts, and they never touch. And the two thoughts were, number one, he loves me more than anything in the world. Um, let me tell you why that thought was so important. When I came to Al-Anon, uh, I don't think I was any different from most of us when we come. We, we tend to come in either angry or hurt. If you come in angry, you're going to have to learn to deal with the hurt. If you come in hurt, you have to learn to deal with the anger. It's the same energy. It's just whether or not I'm blowing it out on you or sucking it in on me. I was hurt. Everything 
hurt. Everything hurt. My sponsor would say, well, how do you feel about it? I don't know. It just hurts my feelings. It just hurts me. So um, one day I got a new feeling. I knew she would be thrilled. And I want you to know that people-pleasing saved my life. Until it started to make my life smaller, people-pleasing saved me. My early years in Al-Anon were full of people-pleasing. But for once, I was pleasing people who were out for my best. <laughs> and I got a new feelings. I could hardly wait to tell her because I knew she'd be so thrilled. So I picked up the phone and I called her and I said, I had a new feeling. And she said, great, what is it? And I said, fear. And she said, oh, wow. Uh, well, what are you afraid of? And I'm like, is that necessary? Do you have to like nail it down? Can you just be afraid? Because I was just afraid. I was afraid. It was so big. I couldn't, there were no limits to it. Once you open the door to it, it it's the bottom line all the way around. And once it got in there, it wasn't leaving. And she said, well, I, I belong to this line of sponsorship. Uh, and I guess I always have. Um, who said you should chase fears to their root cause. The, the big book talks about root and branch. And uh, that they, would, they told me what you think you're afraid of is probably not the real thing you're afraid of because it's so big, you've put other things on top of it. So they want to know what's under that and what's under that and what's under that. And I told them, well, I'm, she's, I told her, I said, well, I'm, I'm afraid he's going to leave me. And she said, huh, Really? Why do you think he's going to leave you? And I said, because he, he told me he was going to leave me. She said, huh, when is he going? I said, Friday. He said he's going to leave Friday. And she said, I want to tell you something, honey. The way to tell whether or not an alcoholic is leaving you is if he's gone. Simple. It's a very simple answer. She said, um, what I would advise you to do is don't listen to what he says. Just watch his feet. Watch his feet. Where he goes and what he does tells you the truth. Don't try to read his lips because he means well, but he can't follow through. Watch his feet. See where he goes. And uh, so this sounds like it should have taken as long as it takes me to tell you, but I bet it took a week or two for me to get to the bottom because it was huge. I was afraid. I was afraid he was going to leave. me, And I was afraid if he left me, he, he was what was going to happen when he left me is I was going to be left alone. And I had avoided feeling alone my entire life. I come from a pretty big family and there had always been people around. And I made sure there were people around, but I was going to end up being alone, alone with two children, which is a whole other kind of alone. Um, and I was so afraid if I was left alone, I was going to have that next thing is I was going to have to deal with this sense of myself. That I can almost feel it today. It's, it's, it's pretty much all gone, but I get, I remember that, that sense of this big, huge, dark thing moving up the back of my head and I'd push it back down again because I knew it was something so big I couldn't handle it. And what it was, was the knowledge, the surety that I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I'm not young enough, old enough, rich enough, thin enough, tall enough, whatever. I am not enough. And if I'm not enough, what's underneath that is I'm not going to be able to take care of myself. And if I can't take care of myself, I'll die. Now, when someone said, I love you to me, what I heard was, I won't leave you. And so when he had said to me, you don't have to live like that. And I love you. Ah, a safe place. Here's a safe place. 
So when I said to him, where were you? And he said, you knew. The fact is I, could, I had the ability to hold opposing thoughts in my head and they never touched. And the two thoughts were number one, he loves me more than anything in the world because he said so. And number two, he's in the trap room drinking. Now, if number one is true and my life depends on that, then number two can't be true. And in my diseasiness, I would rather wish you dead than know the truth. That's what my disease does. And then he said something like, geez, you certainly worked yourself up. And uh, I heard more than once, I don't, I don't know why I stay married to you. And I would always reply with, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Now, what's the matter with the picture? Three hours late and drunk and I'm apologizing. But I have an addiction to mind altering men. <laughs> Actually, not limited to men. Anyone can play with my brain. You don't even have to be present to win. I can just call you up and do it to you and blame it on you. And you don't even know what happened. Um, uh, he and I were married for a couple of years and I ended up in Al-Anon. It's a lovely story. I wish I could tell you, but I can't. One of the things about being here 40 years and 76 years old is <laughs> there's a lot of stuff. Um, and I, and I, uh, and I trudged along in, in Al-Anon and I grabbed hold of the women, which was not, had not been my history at all. In uh, 1984, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I was 38 years old. There's no history of it in my family. Um, uh, my, all my sisters are so grateful that I had it and they've been having to have mammograms since they were in their late thirties. Um, but nobody else has had it. You know, there were studies then that said that cancer was a stress-related disease. They still say that. They say, you know, it can be 70, 60, 70% familial, but uh, there were studies then that said it was a stress-related disease. And, and I made that decision. You know, one of the things I'd learned in, in Al-Anon and listened to the AAs is I get to decide why, why, this, why my life is like it is. And I decided I got in a step study. And we um, did the steps. Everybody worked on their own thing. I worked on mine. I worked on the time when the tumor was growing. And I came out of the step study knowing that uh, living in active alcoholism, I am not, I'm not equipped. I didn't have the spiritual, emotional tools to live in active alcoholism. I didn't have them yet. And I don't know that I have them today. Uh, and that in that situation, I break out in malignancies. Now, cancer is prevalent in alcoholic homes. I can't tell you how many meetings I sit in and I can look around the room and know that I'm one of seven or eight people in the room who've had some form of cancer. I have a sponsee who's had three kinds of cancer, no one else in her family, just her. It's a stress-related disease. You had treated me like my life was valuable. You had treated me like, um, in step two, the word restore. It didn't say beat back into shape. It said restore, which sounds like I'm a value. That's what you do to something of value is you restore it. You restore it to the, the maker's dream of you. And uh, for the first time in my life, my life was valuable to me. And for the first time, I felt like I had enough tools to start on that journey. So for the umpteenth time, I told him for the first time, I meant it. If you don't stay sober, you can't stay here. Uh, if you ask him, he did leave. If you ask him why I left, he would have told you it was my crazy daughter that anybody had to live with her would drink too. Shouldn't make me want to treat drink so much as she made me want to leave home. <laughs> Turns out um, the spring that I had, I was doing chemo. She was doing uh, drugs and alcohol for the first time in the eighth grade. And she just did a 180 um, 
and she just got crazier and crazier and crazier. She just did crazy things and hung out with crazy people. And I'm very busy trying to save my own life. And that was God at work in both of our lives that I could stay out of hers and quit managing her and let her do whatever it was she needed to do. She um, ended up having to leave the school she was going to. And she was a junior in high school. Um, so the school where I had worked since she was five years old said, uh, let's test her because I bet she'll qualify for here. And sure enough, she's qualified for that school. And she won there two weeks before one of the teachers called me and they said, there's something the matter with her. Duh. <laughs> yeah, there was something the matter with her. But he said, we're going to send her um, for an evaluation. Really? Two days later, the guy calls from the treatment center and he says, oh, we hate to tell you this, but we do believe your daughter's alcoholic. I cheered. I'm like, yay! And he goes, huh, we, um, uh, we, we've not had a lot of mothers react like that. And I said, oh, my God. She, I thought, I, she's crazy. That's an Al-Anon symptom. No sign she'll ever get any help for that. But if she's alcoholic, yes, 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 yes. And she's 17, I can make her do stuff. You know, we have a thing in Al-Anon where we talk about we don't want to enable our children. This is my opinion, my opinion only. I don't believe that I enable anybody but myself. I think my kids are on their own path, doing what they're, whatever their path is going to be. When I decide to help them, it isn't out of my great love for them. It's out of my great fear about what, what will go on if, they, if something bad happens to them. How will I handle it? What will I do? And uh, I enable myself. I enable my own feelings, not theirs. Um, and Al-Anon's got sort of an unspoken, unwritten mom rule, which basically says it's okay if you want to try everything you can think of before you can let go of your kids, because that's what most of us have to do. We have to try everything we can think of before we can let go. Of them. Some of us get off a little, little less heavy, but most of us, in my experience, have had to try everything we can think of. And I thought, here is something I can do for her. I can make her go to AA, <laughs> but you know, that is always so successful. You know, I can shove them in the door, but I couldn't get them surrendered. You know, not at all. You cannot give anybody else surrender. You just can't do it. But I shoved her in the door and uh, she stayed sober about a year and a half. Uh, she got sober in uh, November then. And long about uh, July, she started hanging out in slippery places with slippery people. And, and I, for the umpteenth time I said it, for the first time I meant it. If you can't stay sober, you, if you can't go by the rules of this house, you can't stay here. Because it felt like my life was being threatened again. If she drinks, I'll die. That's, you know, the reptilian brain got, got hold of that one. So I planned the day for her exit to be the day I was leaving to go to Crested Butte, Colorado for the Crested Butte Mountain Conference with 600 of my closest friends. And I'm here to tell you that if there is a God, we'll be back on the mountain this summer. If you've not been to Crested Butte, cbconference.org is, uh, is where you can find out about us. It's a week-long family conference. Um, children, um, babysitting, well, we've always had it, whether we are able to get it next summer or not, I don't know. But um, but we do have workshops that the, the uh, conference puts on for children ages six six through Alateen every day, um, something like five Al-Anon meetings a day, four Al-Anon meetings a day and a speaker meeting during the week. And, 
And I was going to Crested Butte because I knew I, I needed the power that was up there. I didn't want to kick my daughter out. I wanted her to be happy, healthy, home and whole, and she couldn't do any of that. Um, so the, the morning that I was packing to go to Crested Butte, I changed the locks on the door and she did not have the key. And But she was still packing her things. And uh, I remember very clearly, she came and threw herself across my bed and she said, Mom, um, you're going to be a grandma. She was 18 and pregnant. And uh, she thought it was a cute way to tell me. I thought she's making me the responsible party. You know, um, uh, I ended up having to call my sponsor and turn myself in because I was not nice. I didn't have the tools to deal with that at all. And it scared the bejesus out of me for a few minutes, a little while. And I called my sponsor and turned myself in. <laughs> and she said, do you want her to stay? And I said, no. And I feel terrible about that. She said, Ellen, there are only so many bad feelings in every relationship. Those are her feelings. Let her have them. I'll stay on the phone while you tell her. I can see that phone lying on my bed. And it, it was such comfort to know she was right there on the phone and she could hear me. And I told her, no, you really are going to have to leave. So uh, we, we went for a difficult fall. Uh, she went around telling people what a horrible mother I was. She was 18 and pregnant and I wouldn't let her live with me. I was uh, not quite healed yet. Um, I went to my friend, Buddy, who was the taper back then. I, I still love the tapers of the world. You get them trapped behind the table and they got to listen to you. They can't go anywhere. <laughs> That old buddy trapped behind the table and I said, buddy, uh, now she's pregnant at me because it's still all about me. It's all about me. I'd been in the program. This is 1987. I'd been in six years at that at that point. Um, and he said, oh, I know exactly how you feel, honey. But he said, you know what? Our son's girlfriend had a child out of wetlock and that baby has been the light of our lives. It never occurred to me I might like it. I love babies. I have not had enough babies to this day. As a matter of fact, this day, I had two of my great grands spend Thursday night with me and stayed with me all day yesterday. And then thank you, God, parents came and got them last night because my granddaughter is about to deliver number three. <laughs> I'm so excited. And um, she was going to the hospital today to get herself checked over. And I just knew they were going to come bounding in the door in the middle of this. <laughs> but I don't see any bounding happening. Happening. So maybe they've sent her home. I don't know. She's past being ready to get it done. Anyway, it's a lovely little girl, and her name is Mila, which is short for Milagro, which is a miracle. And um, I'm so excited to see her. I can hardly stand myself. Here God was offering me a baby, and I was doing the yeah, but thing. Yeah, but. You know, yeah, but is a people-pleasing no. And I'm, uh, it's, it, there's a... Step two talks about um, just sanity, but I think the sanity may be nothing short of paradise. The reason I don't get paradise is because I do, yeah, but not like this, God, not my child, not today, God, not in this, not with this much money, not, not in, or no money or whatever it is. I, yeah, but the gifts from God. Al-Anon has been a journey for me from yeah, but to thank you. And Clint Hodges was a wonderful recovering alcoholic. He used to say, that his idea of acceptance was, thank you, God, for everything exactly as it is. I wouldn't change a thing. Now, I'll tell you, I have some trouble with the wouldn't change a thing, thing part. But uh, that's a, it, it still is a goal. You know, it's, it's, um, it is progress toward perfection. 
Um, and I decided to say thank you for the baby. Thank you for the baby. She's still not going to live with me, but thank you for the baby. Um, a couple of months passed. She said, Mom, I know you knit in a blue blanket, knit faster, had a sonogram today. It's twin boys because you know alcoholics. If one's good, let's have another. Um, that second baby was the what the what what an order baby. You know, what an order. Not that he was any difficult child or anything, but just the second baby. He was a double what we thought of. Um, if, if she'd had one child, I have a sneaky suspicion you'd have another speaker. That's not what happened. She had two. We, we, uh, by the time she delivered in, uh, in March of 20 of, uh, 1988, um, I had invited her to, I told her I wanted her to come and stay with me at my house. I had a little tiny Volkswagen Cabriolet, a little convertible first car on my own. I bought all by myself. I was so pretty pleased with myself and it was kind of crowded in there with those two little babies <laughs> and my, and my daughter, um, because I had learned in the year of cancer that if I want peace of mind, I have to give it to myself. Nobody else is going to give it to me. I would have more peace of mind knowing where she was with those babies. She didn't even like dolls. She turned 19 three days before they were born. What in the world was she going to do with twins? One of them with three little physical things the matter with him when he was born. He, he, they didn't keep, they didn't kill him, but um, they were things to watch. And when they were, um, Five weeks old, she said, um, Mom, I'm not going to keep them and you can have them if you want them. What, what she knew was that she was getting ready to go back out again and she wasn't going to take those babies. Actually, those babies would have gotten in her way. And I'm, I'm so glad she knew she didn't have to take them. Um, th that was a difficult, uh, most difficult summer. I, um, one day I was keeping them and the next day I was giving them up. You know, Al-Anon's love like nobody else on the world, in the world. We love people from somewhere below their feet to somewhere just above their head. And often where they walk is hallowed ground. And I'd fallen in love with heartbeats in the hospital. Just love those little boys. Um, she moved out and gave me power of attorney. And my sponsor had, um, had been telling me for years that God wanted for me what I wanted for me in my heart of hearts. But I'm so afraid to make a decision because what if I pick the wrong thing? what if I pick something this week and then next week something better comes and I don't get to keep it because I picked the stupid thing last week, right? Then I just blame you. So I let you make the decisions and I just blame you for them. Um, she said, she was so good, honey, you're just confused again. She said, your job is walking in the direction of your dreams. Where you get is God's job. God's job is always the outcome. Your job is the footwork. And God's promise to you always is this or something better. God is not a terrorist waiting around the corner to test your patience. God wants for you what you want for you in your heart of hearts. And what I wanted, um, I loved those little boys. And I wanted to be their grandma. But I did not want to be their mom. They're the children of two addicts and I didn't like the odds. So uh, finally found a, a family. They were five months old and finally found a family that didn't matter that there were two babies, didn't matter that they were five months old, didn't matter that there was a heart condition and another thing with the littler baby, didn't matter that the family wanted to stay involved. They said, if, what, if God's will, if this is God's will. And when my daughter heard that, she said, I pick them, I pick them. And so they were adopted by a family that lived 75 miles north of us. And 
a month didn't go by in their lives when we didn't have a meal together. We either drove up there to have a meal with them or they, we met them halfway. They came to my house for Easter and Christmas, their stockings hung by my chimney. And when they were nine and 10 and 11, I think they came and stayed at grandma's house for uh, three days in the summer. They got a baby sister. And when the parents called me up, they said, uh, she doesn't have a grandmother. <laughs> pick me, pick me, pick me. Got another baby. I got another baby. Um, it started getting a little wonky when they were in high school. They had gone to a very small private school and then they were pitched into the public school where they are in high school. And uh, we didn't see them as regularly. We still saw them, but not as regularly as we did. Um, and uh, when they were 19, well, as soon as they graduated, they hightailed it to Dallas as quick as they could. They didn't want to be there in another moment. We hightailed it to Dallas. Um, after the babies left, I'm going to tell you real quick, you shouldn't have given me extra time. I think I have all the time in the world and I do not. Um, no, you did fine. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to honor that gift. Anyway, when the babies left, I recognized that I had never been single in my life. I'd always been engaged to, married to, divorced from, engaged to, married to, divorced from somebody. But there was always this big hole beside me. And I was forever throwing people in the hole to make me enough. Problem is, I don't remember most of their names. So really, um, they, it was never enough. And I decided that for once, at however old I was then, 40-something years old, that I, I wanted to be single. And so I, that, that meant that I wasn't going to date. And it wasn't like I had to go to the front steps and say, sorry, boys, I've sworn off. There was no one there. <laughs> there was nobody knocking on the door. Left me with women. I love you. I do love you. I recognize I'm a woman and I'm glad to be a woman, but you are not my first choice, girls. I'm just saying, I don't like doing girly things. When somebody starts with, oh, let's go shopping all day. I'd rather poke my eyes out. That sounds like torture. Um, I'm not, you know, so I told the girls, I called the girls up and I'd say, I had this huge car. And I said, uh, I'm going to go to the Brasses Riverside conferences, you know, in two weeks. And you're welcome to come go with me if you want to I have a big car. And if you need to bring all your shoes that you own for the three day conference, I think I have room. I can make, do the whole thing in my Nikes, but you know, bring all your shoes. I, I can handle that. And, um, and every time, okay, okay, every time you have to pee, we'll stop the car. I think I could make it to Kansas on my own bladder, but women can be really bizarre. You can just be driving down the road and someone says, oh, look, there's a bathroom. Do I have to? Yes, yes, yes. Pull in, pull in, pull in. A minute ago, it was just fine. Now it's an emergency. We got to pull in. Um, the biggest concession I made was that I said, every time we pass a Walmart, I'll go in. Now, Walmart just eats me alive. There's just too much stuff in Walmart. I don't know where to put my eyes in there to feel safe. It's just overwhelming to me. And I want you to know I was because of my willingness to go into Walmart. I was healed in the Walmart in Dalhart, Texas, with a car full of women. We ended up on aisle five, aisle 12, where they had $5 bathing suits. And we laughed until I thought they were going to call for cleanup over there. Um, the stories we were telling ourselves about what was going to happen if we put on those $5 bathing suits. I told them I thought they'd be like communion wafers. They'd just melt right off of you if you got them wet. <laughs> we had the best time. And um, I came out of that time understanding that uh, the voice I understand best is another woman another woman's. That's who I understand best. And when I need, I know who to ask for help. I love my men. God knows I love my men, but they don't have my answers. 
So then this cute guy asked me out. He wasn't all that cute. So that was pretty safe. I, I knew I wasn't going to go crazy for him. He wasn't all that cute. I knew him through my job. He was not in the 12-step program. That was a promise I'd made myself. There will be none of that um, outside mixing going on here. We're just going to have people in the program. Well, I, he was practice. I just wanted to see if I could be me in a relationship and not have to be who I thought he wanted me to be or do what I thought he wanted me to do so he wouldn't leave me, you know. And uh, we dated for five years, not my, not my usual, as you know, it's usually a year at the most and I've nailed him, but we dated because uh, I would come home from a date and I'd pick up the phone and call my sponsor. I wouldn't react to anything on the date. I'd just come home, call my sponsor, tell her what happened. And she talked me through whatever I was going through with it. Um, one day, he, one night, he told me something that just horrified me, perfectly horrified me. I couldn't believe he'd done what he did. I was so angry I couldn't speak. And, but he knew my path. My path was that I want to go home and I'm going to call my sponsor and talk to him. And then I'll talk to you after I've talked to him, her. And he said, you know, there isn't anything we can't work out if you'll just talk to me. Nobody had ever said such a thing to me before that uh, being willing to work it through was as important to them as it was to me. And I made the decision to love him at that point. My sponsor told me, you're not love's helpless victim. You make a decision to love people. And I made the decision to love him. I tell you, I kissed a lot of frogs to find the prince, and he was not hiding where I thought he was. Um, I knew he had a an issue. I needed somebody with an issue that I could, you know, get crazy about in my time of need. But it wasn't alcoholism. As best I could tell, you know, he drank, but he always was where he said he'd be when he said he'd be there, and that was my gauge about whether or not they're alcoholic. And so, uh, and then I realized his drinking made me. I got more and more anxious about his drinking. And one night at a um, we were at a conference and I was crazy. It had been a difficult year. It was like 94, I think it was a crazy year. All sorts of things had happened. And, and Marcy said, you're going to do, we're going to sit at dinner and you're going to do your first step with me. I want to know, you know, what makes you really mad? What just makes you a little bit mad? And then what hurts your feelings? So tell me those things. That's going to be your step one. And I told her, um, I love him. But when he comes home, I tend to go, hello. And if I smell alcohol on him, my night goes to hell in a handbasket. I need to know he'll drink and I won't die. I thought maybe it was time to face that fear that other people could drink and I wouldn't die. And an hour later, he walked up to the podium and said he was an alcoholic and he never took another drink. He says he caught alcoholism going to my meetings. <laughs> I don't think so. Like he had that all by himself. But anyway. I don't have time and I don't have words to tell you what a lovely time we had together. Married a lot of years. Um, the twins, um, my, so my daughter came back into AA in, in 1990 and she had a fabulous sobriety. She was sober. Um, I don't know exactly. I can't tell you exactly, but I, I'm thinking it's around 17, 18 years somewhere with a, a clean sobriety. She had gotten married and had two more boys. She got two college degrees. She was brilliant and beautiful and an alcoholic, and uh, and uh, and then she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She was thirty nine. Now my children are adopted, so it was not familial that hers came from, but it might have been circumstantial. And, and I don't know. Uh, and she got started on um, pain pills, uh, prescription drugs, and the next thing you know, she's addicted because she wouldn't let anybody else dose them for her. She had to do it herself. Um, and it, she tried for the next 
seven years, six, seven, six, seven years, she tried to get sober again, six years, maybe she tried to get sober again and couldn't do it. And they had told us we'd put her through treatment. Actually, this time I'd never done that with her before. So there was one more thing this mama could try and I put her through treatment. And they said the chances of somebody with long-term sobriety who slips getting long-term sobriety again are very small. And uh, she went, she kept going to AA. She never stopped. The people in AA were wonderful with her. She just couldn't do it. Um, in uh, October of 2013, um, Anthony, uh, Cameron, the smaller of the twins, the one with the heart stuff and all that, they were 25 years old and he killed himself driving drunk in a one vehicle accident. And Melissa went over the edge when that happened. Her second husband had already, um, had he, he ha if he hadn't left her, he was getting ready to leave her. Um, she just went over the edge. Um, earlier that summer, my husband had said to me, I think we ought to get the boys. She had a 13 year old and a 15 year old and we went and got the boys. And she said, yes, take them. The police had been called to their house a couple of times. and It was just ugly. Um, and I still have the older one. He's 23 now who lives with me. The other one lived with me until May, but he didn't want to get the vaccine. And I said, that's a fabulous choice. You can make that, but you can if you live with your grandmother's side. And um, there was a, a, a lovely family, his girlfriend's family, who was happy to have him. And I'm happy he's got that place to be. And, um, and that's where he is. But I, you know, I see him on a regular basis anyway. Um, and then uh, uh, my old, the older twin had already been a convicted felon. He'd already spent time in prison when he was 21 or 22. Um, alcohol, all alcohol related, though he didn't have his first drink till graduation night. And uh, he, they're definitely alcoholic, the two of them. Um, uh, and then in um, September of 2016, he went, Anthony, the older one, went back to prison, too many DWIs, and they sent him to a judicial treatment center, not too far from where you guys are, I think, in the hopes that he might catch alcoholism in prison, you know. Um, that same month, my husband was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia and given four to six months to live. Um, I don't know because Melissa, we didn't see a whole lot of Melissa, but um, as best I can piece together with her, a couple of her friends, the cancer, I knew the cancer had come back um, and she didn't have any money. She didn't have any insurance. She didn't have a job. She didn't know what anything she could do about it. And she wasn't going to go to the free clinic, wasn't going to do any of that. She only wanted her old doctor. And um, the upshot of it was by uh, the end of 2016, the cancer was everywhere, apparently. And, uh, the, and then the, the 17th of uh, the middle of January, she killed herself. Apparently, she'd gotten a call saying that the, it would just be a matter of weeks. She already knew that Pop was dying. And she I know part of her decision was I can't put everybody through that. Um, three and a half weeks later, my husband died. We were together 30 years, 30 years of a life I never dreamed possible. Al-Anon gave me dreams I didn't know I wanted. I didn't have any idea. I would have sold myself so short. Um, when Melissa died, and still, and I'm not since COVID because I haven't been in groups of people since then, but before we had to separate ourselves that we could be in a group of people and inevitably that would there would be an alcoholic woman who'd come up to me and she'd say can I tell you what Melissa did for me when I was new sober I wouldn't be here today if it hadn't been for Melissa what I know is the little lights of Melissa lives in each of those people
she lives there. And people would come to me and they'd say, my husband was in three 12-step programs by the time he died. My family was kind of playing wipeout with him, you know. Um, and people would come to me and they'd say, do you know what it was like sitting in a meeting with him? Oh, yeah. I used to get in all sorts of trouble sitting in meetings with him. He was just a riot, that guy. But he was the one, um, I have a sponsee who was the angriest woman I ever met in my life. And I was afraid of anger. So the fact that I agreed to sponsor her 20 something years ago was pretty amazing because she said to me, I'm angry, but I'm not angry at you. And she allowed me to learn about anger. The only other person she could be with was my husband. She felt so safe with him because that's the kind of guy he was. Um, the, what I was overwhelmed with that year after they died was this sense, this deep grief for real, but this deep, deep gratitude. How in the world? Out of the billions of souls who have been on this planet and are yet to be on this planet, how did I get to be here at the same time those fabulous people were here? And making it even more remarkable is I'm the only person on the planet she ever called mom. I mean, how did that happen? My husband, um, <laughs> we both thought we'd married above ourselves. Um, we couldn't believe that we had each other. We weren't happy all the time, but it was happy 95% of the time, I assure you. It was a remarkable relationship. And uh, how in the world I got to be his wife, I'll never know. I cannot tell you how grateful I am. I discovered that year as gratitude is a basic element in my belief in God. Um, five weeks to the day after my husband died, Mason Taylor Rodriguez, our great-grandson, was born. He's the oldest of this little family that I'm, that I'm hanging on to right this minute. And uh, I knew when I saw him that he was my rainbow boy. He was God's promise. It would never be that painful again. I had my rainbow boy. He says that to me now. Mason's your rainbow boy. Yes, you are. Asked, but still what you did makes me crazy. Stop it. Okay. Um, he's not above using those things. He's darling, but he's conniving, if you know what I mean. Um, there's a line in uh, um, Transforming Our Losses. I think it's someplace toward the end of the preface that says, if we will face our losses openly and willingly, we will find in ourselves a resilience we didn't even know we had. Not in spite of, but because of. Because we were willing to go through the pain of it. Because we were willing to do the work. Um, I don't. You know, you have two choices when life hands you the next thing it's going to hand you. You can either hunker down and try to work it all out or you can lean into the program. And that's what I've done is I've leaned in. I've leaned in. I am more an Al-Anon than I have ever been. I am more grateful for my Al-Anon program than I ever have been. Ever. People say, how do you? And I said, you know, a day at a time. I've been training for this. I have a God who never has made me, uh -oh, look at this, I guess I'm done. Um, I have a win-win God. God has never made me sacrifice something so you can be okay. When God is involved in what's going on with me, we both win. If I can keep the focus on me and do what I believe is best for me to do, it'll be what's best for you. Whether you believe me or like it, it'll be what's best for you. At least I won't walk away resenting you because I didn't do what I needed to do for myself. So I want to encourage you, my friends. Walk on, walk on. I sing that to the little children at my preschool. They're three years old. 
when I'm trying to keep them in line. Walk on, walk on with hope in your hearts and you'll never walk alone. <laughs> Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for having me. I see ya. All right, I have turned on the chat. So if you would like to thank Ellen for her story, for giving us her, um, you know, it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that our past is our greatest treasure. And I really thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and uh, I'm honored to be here with all of you guys. And uh, thank you so much for everybody um, and uh, for contributing to our meeting by being here, by letting us see your faces, those of you who could.